0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Garden Grove, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Garden Grove. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Garden Grove. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. This is James Orr. And today we have another really crazy cool presentation. Um, This one is about the impact that buying an owner-occupant property has on you being able to be financially independent, whether you're buying 20% down rentals or buying 25% down rentals. In other words, in the previous class, we covered, is it faster? Is it less risky? Is it higher net worth for you to buy 20% down rental properties, or for you to go buy 25% down rental properties. And in that presentation, we talked about all the different things related to 20% versus 25%. But what we didn't specifically do in that kind of modeling is we did not have you buy an owner-occupant property first. So in this presentation... We have you buying an owner-occupant property with 5% down. Then you go and you buy 20% down or 25% down. And you might be wondering, hey, you know, does buying the owner-occupant property slow you down? Does, you know, buying a property that has, that's more expensive than you renting, is that going to reduce your savings rate and slow down your ability to save up for down payments? Or, Does buying an owner-occupant property where the mortgage payment, the principal and interest part of the payment, not the taxes and insurance, those are actually going up, but the mortgage payment stays fixed such that over time you end up saving more money than if you didn't buy an owner-occupant property because rents would keep pace with inflation. So the amount you're saving would normally stay about the same over time. But if you buy an owner-occupant property and you have that mortgage payment be fixed, yeah, maybe at the very beginning, it's worse for you. You're saving less. But because the principal and interest part of the payment does not change, that remains static. And so over time, the amount that you're able to save to invest in whatever you're investing in this case, putting 20% down, 25% down to buy rental properties, but it could be stocks, it could be bonds, it could be you know Dogecoin, it could be whatever you're investing in, right? Because you'll end up having more to save if you buy this owner-occupied property as time goes on. Because you fix in your cost of living expense. you know part of your cost of living. There's still some that's going up, the taxes and the insurance and the maintenance and all that other stuff on the property. But the mortgage payment is fixed. And the other weird thing about this is at some point, 30 years in the future, if you're getting a 30-year loan, you get rid of that payment completely your principal and interest part of your loan goes away because you paid off the loan. So now you're living on taxes and insurance and maintenance on the property. So if you thought before you paid off the property, you needed, let's say $10,000 a month in order to be financially independent. You needed your passive income from all of your assets to produce $10,000 a month in order for you to be financially independent and cover all of your living expenses, including your housing. But now let's say just for argument's sake, $2,000 a month of that no longer needs to happen because you no longer have a mortgage payment. So now you only need $8,000 a month to be financially independent. Well, that's super interesting because if you were at $9,000 a month in passive income, by paying off your mortgage, you instantly become financially independent. And so whenever you pay off that mortgage, if you were really close to being financially independent, it may be you're there or it may be that you're really, really close to doing it. So all of these things impact whether you're going to be better off buying an owner-occupant property and putting 20% down or buying an owner-occupant property and putting 25% down. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the difference between putting 20% down and buying rental properties or putting 25% down buying rental properties, but only after we bought a single owner-occupant property first. In other classes, we will compare directly head-to-head buying an owner-occupant and then buying 20% down rentals to buying no owner-occupant and buying 20% down rentals. But today, we're going to actually do, in both cases, you're buying the owner-occupant property, and now you're buying either 20% down rentals or 25% down rentals. We're going to see which one of those is going to be faster to financial independence for you, which one is going to be higher net worth for you, and which one will be less risky. So that's what the kind of presentation is about today. So hope you're as excited as I am let's begin. (laughs) So I modeled this in order to tell you which one is better. I modeled this for over 300 US cities. And uh, what I went in there and I basically did is I, I set up a scenario in our real estate financial planner software that I wrote. And it allows us to go and model if somebody were to make a certain amount of money and they're saving a certain amount of money and they're buying properties that have certain characteristics based on whatever market you're in and how long it takes you in order to get to the point where your investments actually all um, the, the, the returns from all your investments exceeds your, um, your kind of living expenses that you have there, and then we'll figure out how long it takes you to do that, and then we can measure a whole bunch of different things, like net worth and time to financial independence and a whole bunch of different risk measurements, and honestly, we could go and look at any of the details. It's like probably 100 different variables that we track, but we'll, we'll kind of simplify for this presentation so I don't get too far in the weeds. So I did all those analysis, and then we're summarizing all that analysis. You can, and probably should drill into the individual city that you're considering doing this in so you can get more details. Okay, so here's the comparison. In both scenarios, whether you're buying 20% down, or 25% down, you're buying an owner-occupant property with a 5% down payment to start with, and you're voluntarily paying private mortgage insurance. And if you remember, private mortgage insurance is an insurance that you pay in order to protect the lender because you didn't put 20% down. And we cover that in detail in a lot of other classes, so I'm not going to go into detail on that, but It is something that you are paying so that you can put less than 20% down when you buy the property. That way, if you default, the lender feels protected. And that's one of the conditions they have for you to be able to buy a property with less than 20% down. And then you are going to move into that property because you're buying an owner-occupant property to live in. And you are living in that property forever as part of our model. You are never moving out. You're never buying anything else to replace it. You're basically buying the property, moving in, living there forever. And then you buy your next property In this case, you're going to be your rental properties when you've saved enough money for a down payment plus closing costs plus six months of reserves for both your personal expenses and the reserves on any properties that you own. And you can qualify for the loan based on a 45% debt to income ratio. So I am checking for all those things before you buy your next property. You need to have saved up either 20% down or 25% down plus closing costs plus six months of reserves for all of your personal expenses, whatever your living expenses are, and six months of reserves for any properties that you own. And you need to be able to have a 45% debt-to-income ratio, including the new property that you're purchasing. And then if that, all that criteria is met, then you can buy your next rental property as fast as you can. And some of them are going to be faster than others because in some markets, the cash flow is better and it actually helps you qualify faster with that debt-to-income ratio. And some of them, the cash flow is worse and it slows you down from being able to qualify for that forty-five percent debt-to-income ratio. You need to wait until your property is actually cash flow a little bit better before you can qualify for the loan. Okay. And we're buying up to ten properties total, one of them you're going to be living in, and up to nine rental properties. So that's the criteria we're going to do with the twenty percent down kind of situation. That all those scenarios, you're saving up until you have twenty percent down to buy a non-owner occupant, an investment property. And you're gonna put a renter in the property and you're gonna repeat that until you have 10 properties total, nine of them are rentals. For the 25% down, very similarly, you're gonna save up until you can buy 25% down non owner occupant properties and you put a renter in the property and you repeat that until you have 10 properties with nine rentals in that situation. And realize that when you put 25% down, cash flow tends to be better. Why? Because you get a slightly better interest rate when you put more down, when you go from 20 to 25%, there is a bump, an improvement in your interest rate that you're getting from the lender, and also you're borrowing less. Instead of borrowing 80% of the property value, you're now borrowing 75% of the property value. So the monthly payment on that is lower just because you're borrowing less. So your monthly payment improves in two ways. Number one, it improves because you have a lower interest rate, and it improves because you're borrowing less on the property. So you have improved cash flow. But it takes a little bit longer for you to save up that extra 5%. So, your acquisition speed, at least in the beginning, is a little bit slower because it takes you a little longer to save up 25%. But once you start buying these 25% down rentals, the cash flow from them is a little bit better. So, maybe your speed to acquire them actually speeds up later because you're actually producing more cash flow. And in a future class, this is not this class, but in a future class, I'm going to show you the comparison between buying properties with 20% down or buying properties 25% down versus actually saving up and paying 100% buying the properties for all cash. You may think that that's going to take forever. It's going to be so much slower than putting 20% down or putting 25% down because you're able to acquire the properties quicker and then you've got the asset growing and all this other stuff. If you go and you wait until you buy the property free and clear, you know, it takes so much longer to do that. You may not buy a property for you know, 15 or 20 years or whatever it is. Yes, but then once you buy the property, the cash flow on it is amazing because it's free and clear. And so that actually has a much more significant impact than I think a lot of people would think And the speed difference between 20% down, 25% down, and buying a property free and clear is not what most people think it is. That's all I'll say for now. Realize that's coming soon. Okay, if you want to drill down and look at the charts that I'm going to present here, you can go to that URL on the screen there. I'll put it in the show notes if we're publishing this to the podcast, so you can click on it and you can see the difference between 20% and 25% down for the ones we're doing today. And by the way, a lot of the ones that I'm going to do in the future are already up. I tend to make them in advance. This is not like I make them and then present them you know, all in the same day. So realize that if you want to jump ahead and see some of the other comparisons we have, you can go drill down into those. You can even drill down to the individual city. All right, pause for a drink. All right, so because we're measuring how quickly people are achieving financial independence, I thought I should probably tell you what my definition of financial independence is. So financial independence is when your assets exceed the expenses you have for that particular person. So, excuse me, if someone is making whatever it is, and the the amount they make varies by city, because in order for you to qualify for a house in one city might be more or less than qualifying for a house in another city. So I do take that into account. I basically set your income to be such that you can afford about a median price house in that marketplace. But then, it also means that you need to overcome that higher income. You need to replace that higher income. So you're handicapped. You do make more money so you can actually buy the house quicker, but then you're also handicapped because you need to make that much more in order to be considered financially independent. Okay. So what does that mean to be financially independent? You need to have income coming in from these five sources exceed your minimum expenses. Okay. Number one is net positive cash flow from rental properties. You take all of the income from all your rentals, mostly it's rent. Although it could be things like laundry or anything like that, if you've got multifamily, you know, any income you have it minus all of your expenses, including your vacancy, your principal and interest on your mortgage payment, any taxes, any PMI you have, any insurance, you know, property insurance, any maintenance, any management of the property. So you take all the income minus all the expenses, your net positive cash flow that counts towards you being financially independent. Plus. Any money that you've got sitting on the sideline, whether it's waiting for, waiting to be a down payment or you've acquired all your rental properties, now you're just and taking all the money and investing it in whatever you're doing, in this case, probably stocks, taking all your money that you have on the side times this safe withdrawal rate. So they talk about the Trinity study being a 4% safe withdrawal rate rule. We'll cover that in future classes. I'm not going to go into it in detail now. But if you had a million dollars and you said, I could take 4% out safely per year, that's what you believe is true. Then you have about $40,000 per year contributing towards you being financially dependent using those numbers, plus three sources of passive income social security, which we didn't model here, annuities, which we didn't model here, or any pensions, which we didn't model here. So if you have those three, those would also contribute to you being financially independent. In this particular case, we didn't model any of those because we just didn't. Okay. All right. So here are my assumptions. Each city modeling uses their median home price and estimated rents on those properties. So we did not apply any of the 88 strategies we have to improve cash flow and and so we're really handicapping ourselves because we didn't pick a great property to begin with nor did we actually apply all these different strategies that we have to improve cash flow different ways to kind of minimize our expenses on the properties and different ways we have to maximize the income we're getting at properties we didn't do any of those so this is sort of like a baseline if you went into this market and you were not great at real estate investing you just sort of did Bought a medium type property and you kind of got what the estimated rent would be for those. That's sort of what we did there. If you go dig in and you see my modeling and you're like, hey, James, you know, the modeling you did for this city, um, your assumptions are a little bit off. Go ahead and reach out to me. I will go ahead and update those. I will rerun it and then it will update all the charts and stuff like that. It doesn't update the presentation, but it'll update all the charts of the website and make those accurate for everyone in the future. Okay. Now, continue on with the assumptions. The job income. Does vary based on the city, so that they can afford a property in the marketplace. If I said everybody earns five thousand dollars, then people in California would never buy a house because they would never be able to qualify for debt to income based on the home prices there. Okay, but someone in I don't know one of the lower cost cities, probably in the south. Um, th- those tend to be a little bit less expensive in general. You know, those those guys may be able to do this whole model on five thousand dollars a month or six thousand dollars a month or whatever their numbers happen to be. I do it such that they can. Qualify for a typical property in that marketplace, a median price property in that marketplace. Um, when they do that, um, but we also consider that if you are earning more, you need to actually replace that money in financial to be financially independent. So it's not like we're saying you need to replace five thousand dollars a month. No, you need to replace what your income that you were earning was, so that you could become financially independent. That way, we're trying to level the playing field when we do our comparisons. Another way of saying this: in cities where they have higher income, they need more passive income more investment income and more rental income to be considered financially independent. So it's while they're, a little bit is given to those that earn more, more is expected for them to become financially independent at the end. And another assumption, we start with just enough in down payments to buy a 5% down owner occupant property based on wherever they are. So it's 5% of whatever the prices of properties are there with closing costs. So we estimated 7% of the price of properties in their marketplace to kind of give them a little bit of buffer there. Um, and if it's less than $10,000, which I don't even think it is, but if it's less than $10,000, then we set that as a minimum bar. So everyone starts with at least 10 k In most cases, it's going to be more than that. And so some people are starting with a little bit more. Some people are starting with a little bit less, depending on the market. And the interest rates we're using, uh, for the owner-occupant property, as of right now, they're probably in this ballpark. They change a little bit each day. And with all the volatility going on in the marketplace, I'm recording this in uh, March 28th of 2023. But if you kind of look at what the interest rates are, we're saying that interest rates are about 6.5% for owner-occupants with 5% down, plus in addition to that, they'll have PMI. Uh, and if they're going to go buy a non-owner-occupant property with 20% down, interest rates are estimated to be 7% for our modeling and no PMI for that because they're putting 20% down. And if you're getting a 25% down non-owner-occupant loan, it's 6.75. So it's a a point. Two 5% or quarter point difference between buying with 20% down versus buying 25% down. And I think that's conservative. Check with your lender. This varies a little bit each day, but I think that usually it's a little bit more than that. So I'm slightly handicapping the 25% down purchases by not giving the full benefit that they're going to get. And in that case, by the way, they're not paying PMI either. So with both of the non-owner occupant purchases, they're not paying PMI. Okay. And I modeled this out for a hundred years not because I think you're going to live to be 100 years from now old, which you may very well, um, but because I was modeling it out for 60 years at first, which I think for some people is too short and some people it's probably too long. However, we're finding that sometimes they achieve financial independence right after we stopped doing our modeling. So I did 100 years to give us a wider range of finding out when people achieve financial independence. And you can see all of my assumptions in detail if you go to, at least for right now, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model. And you can pick your city and see a ridiculous number of models for your particular city and other cities if you want to see those too. And a whole bunch of comparisons of aggregate data for all the different cities at the same time. All right. So let's jump into the data. Let me take a drink. So financial independence achieved. It turns out that when you buy an owner-occupant property, and then you buy 25% down investor properties, you achieve financial independence faster in 216 cities out of 305. So in other words, about two-thirds of the time, it would be faster for you in achieving financial independence in two-thirds of the cities if you put 25% down when you bought your rental properties. If you decided only to put 20% down, it would be faster in about 29 cities, about 10% of the cities. So in, when you, in 10% of the cases, it was better for you to put 20% down. In two-thirds of the cases, it was better for you to put 25% down. And in 60 cities, about 20%, it didn't matter at all. It was exactly the same time to be financially independent. Okay. So there were a bunch of cities where you never quite achieved financial independence uh, about, about 20 or so, give or take. And uh, that varied. So, um, and most of those, you didn't achieve financial independence, whether you put 20% down or 25% down. Now you may have accumulated a rather large net worth, but you may not have actually qualified mathematically as all those criteria we kind of said about cash flow and invested assets times safe withdrawal rate that may not have technically triggered you to be financially independent. However, if you're 65 years old, let me use an extreme example. If you're 100 years old and you've got 10 million dollars invested um, between your properties and your um, you know invested assets and stocks and bonds and everything else, and even though you technically don't qualify where the cash flow from your properties and the invested assets times your safe withdrawal rate actually equals what you need to be considered financially independent. If you have $10 million and you're hundred years old, are you probably okay? Yeah, probably. Because you could probably spend, if you think, hey, look, the maximum I might expect to live is to be 110. So I could spend a million dollars a year and just deplete my assets so that I end up with zero. So technically you could do that. So there may be situations where you have a whole bunch of assets, you know, millions of dollars in, in net worth, but you technically don't achieve financial independence in the mathematical sense, where the income coming in from the properties and the income coming in from your invested assets, some state withdrawal rate, and the pensions and annuities and social security, those combined too, but those don't quite make you financial independent, okay? All right, so this shows you a histogram showing you how many of the cities achieved financial independence broken out by time. And so you can see like, let's look over here, on the low end here, um, there are some that achieve it in, and probably in the five-year or so range. There's about five cities that do that. And it doesn't matter if you put 20% down or 25% down. It's about the same number. The same thing here with this kind of up here when you're in the eight-year rule, kind of like in that general period of time. And then about 10 years, looks like uh, there are some properties where if you put 20% down, you achieve financial independence a little faster compared to 25% down. But what I want to point out to you about this is these look relatively similar to me, except there's this big bump here right after about the 30-year point. What is happening after this 30-year point? What happens after 30 years? You pay off your owner-occupant property because you bought the property with 5% down at the very beginning. Then you started saving for your investment properties. But after 30 years, after you buy your owner-occupant property, that thing gets paid off. So a whole bunch of scenarios got to the point where they were financially independent as soon as you paid off this home, this owner-occupant home. So you can see there's a big bump in here from when people pay off their houses. Now, that's not that's not what's doing it for everybody, but it does have a big bump there when that happens, okay? So you can see that. All right, so what this chart is showing you, it's showing you how many months faster it was to put 25% down or to put 20% down For each individual city, each city is its own dot. The green ones show where it was better to put 25% down by this number of months, however many months it is away from this zero line. So like this one right here is about 25 months. So it's 25 months faster for this particular city than putting 20% down. So it's about two years faster or so. To for this particular city, if you put 25% versus putting 20% down. And this axis shows you how expensive the properties are in that marketplace. So there's this market right here has really, really expensive properties. And it was better for you to put 25% down by about six months in that particular case. And you can see how far away they are from this kind of zero line shows you how much better. So just I'll make some general statements about this data. When you put 25% down, sometimes it's a lot faster. They're a lot farther away from the zero line. Sometimes they're not, and sometimes they're exactly the same. That's all the ones that are on zero, okay? But when you look at the ones that are red, the red ones are where a 20% down is faster by that many months. There are times when 20% down is faster, but not by that many months. So 25% was, was quickly behind it if you did that. But there are sometimes when you put 25% down where it made a huge difference, you know, in this case, it's like three years faster for you to put 25% down. Now, if you love your job and everything is amazing and you think this is great, I don't, I don't, I'm not in a hurry to be financially independent and stop working, which is what happens, by the way, in our modeling. When someone becomes financially independent, we have them stop working. But if you're like, hey, listen, I love my job. I don't care. Then does it really matter if it's three years faster to be financially independent? Probably not. But what if you hate your job? What if you're like, I can't wait to be done with this? I need to be financially independent. I want to spend time with my family. I want to spend time with my significant other or my kids or my grandkids. And I want time to be able to do what I want to do. Well, then three years may be a long time. And you know, what's the value of knowing that you could be three years faster? You know, What kind of value does that add to you if I could, I could show you which strategies are better versus which strategies are worse, which strategies are less risky, which strategies are going to get you there faster, which strategies are going to give you a higher net worth? So I don't know, three years could be life-changing. Okay, to be able to buy three years of your time back by just being smart about which strategy you use. I don't know, seems pretty important to me. Okay, so you can kind of see the difference there. And you can see that in general, the more expensive the properties, the better off you would be putting 25% down because there are hardly any red dots on the expensive property side. Okay, but there are lots of green dots. So the more expensive your market in general here, the, more, the better it would be for you to put 25% down in order to get to financial independence faster. All right, now let's switch to net worth. So for net worth, if you put 25% down, you have a higher net worth at year 40, which is kind of our measuring point, 40 years in the future. You have a higher net worth at year 40 if you put 25% down in 151 of the 305 cities. So about half the time, You'd have a higher net worth by putting 25% down, which may be counterintuitive for a lot of you folks because you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'm putting 20% down. I'm acquiring properties a lot faster, at least in the beginning, because I'm I'm buying the first one faster. Like, hey, if you're rushing to go buy your first 20% down property and you're like, listen, I just got to get in. I got to save up just enough. Now I'm going to buy a property right now, right away. Might be better depending on what city you're in and the economics of your city for you to actually wait until you save up that extra 5%. That's what this is saying. It's just the math. Okay. So in 151 cities, it's faster for you to put 20, not faster. It's you have a higher net worth uh, by putting 25% down. Now in 138 cities, you'd have a higher net worth if you put 20% down. So A little bit more to put 25% down, a few more cities, but not a huge difference. And 16 cities, it made no difference at all. You have the same net worth regardless. Okay. Now here's the difference in net worth. This is that chart we showed you before. So it shows you how much better or worse putting 20% or 25% down was in terms of net worth broken out by price of properties. So how far it is away from zero is how much better it is. The green dots means that 20 percent down was better, had more dollars. The red dots are where 25 percent down was better. it had more dollars. So in some cities, by putting 20 percent down, you had a lot more dollars, millions of dollars more by year 40. However, in other cities, you'd be better off putting 25 percent down and. The reality is it's not as much better. So the the ones where 25% is better, it's not by a lot more money. I mean, some of them are pretty decent, but we're not talking about millions of dollars. We're talking about, I don't know, just eyeballing it, half a million dollars. So in some cases, putting 20% down gives you a higher net worth, but not necessarily speed to financial independence, which they're sometimes competing goals. All right? Okay, so you can kind of see that. There was only one city where we ran out of money, where you're buying properties that had such negative cash flow that you ended up running out of money, even though we had those six months of reserves and six months of personal reserves and all those other things. And remember, we didn't apply any of the eighty-eight strategies we have to improve cash flow. There are quite a few things that we could have done to avoid this in real life. We could have bought better properties. We could have bought properties in a market that didn't have this really ugly cash flow. Imagine you're in the market, which I'll tell you what that market is in a second. And maybe part of my assumptions, by the way, too, because I'm not an expert at all these markets. But imagine you're in this market where you have this really, really ugly cash flow. Well, you're not moving into these properties. So technically, you could go pick a slightly better market to invest and buy properties in. You didn't have to buy properties in this market. It's not like you're doing the nomad strategy where you're moving into each property, right? You're only moving into one property. But for all the other investment properties you bought, you don't have to technically invest in that same city. So we could have done that as just a really obvious solution. And there are a whole bunch of other things we could have done to improve the economics of the properties that we're buying. Okay, so in one city, we ran out of money. That city happened to be San Jose, California. And it could be that my assumptions were wrong. Like maybe my estimate of rent on the properties that we said were the median price properties were just off in San Jose. I, I, it's definitely a possibility. So if you happen to be in San Jose, please reach out to me and let's go over the assumptions that we, uh, we use for San Jose and we'll correct those. And then we'll rerun it. And maybe San Jose looks amazing then. I don't know. Okay. So I'm just not familiar with that. All right. So that's all we got there. All the other ones did not run out of money in our modeling. All right. Here's a quick summary. So this shows you, there's two different slides here. One where we look at what the median was. And by median, I mean, we took all the values, let's let's say for net worth, as an example, we lined them up from the smallest net worth to the highest net worth. Then we looked at what the middle most one was. And we, we told you what the median, the middle most number was for net worth. And so for example, with 20% down the median, the middle most net worth was just about uh, $8.9 million. But the median net worth, when you put 25% down, was about $9.023 million, or a little bit more, about $100,000, $116,000 difference. Not a big difference, in my opinion. It's about 1.3% different, with 25% being a little bit higher on median net worth. Now, I did median, but I also do average. Average is where you add up all of them, and you divide by the number that you have, and so you get an average, okay? And so the average net worth is about $11.9 million, versus $11.8 million. again, about $134,000 difference, again, about 1.1%. So not a significant difference there in net worth. But in both cases, I'm sorry, in, in, in the case of median, 25% down is a little bit better. In the case of average, 20% down is a little bit better. So depending on whether you're at looking at the median case or the average case, Depends on which one would have been better for you, twenty percent or twenty-five percent. But honestly, they're only like one percent off, and that's not that big of a difference. And in addition to that, this is a net worth forty years in the future, so it's in like inflated dollars. You think about that, right? Like, think about you know forty years ago what the cost of things were. They were a lot cheaper than they are today. And so, if you look forty years in the future, things are a lot more expensive. If you want to kind of adjust back to today's dollars the really rough rule of thumb is about one third of that value is what it would feel like in today's dollars. So it's like almost having a $3 million net worth on median or whatever that is, uh, $4 million on average. Okay, really rough math. Okay, so uh, number of properties that were short on median, basically none were short uh, because there was only that one that was. You're typically buying 10 properties in both cases, no matter which one you do. However, the time to be financially independent is about 492 months if you put 25% down versus 509 months, a little slower if you put 20% down, which means that on median, the middlemost one had about a 17 month difference. It was about 3.3% faster for you to put 25% down than for you to put 20% down. Interesting, right? If you look at the average, putting 25% down was about 1.7% faster. A little bit less than a year, 9.2 months. All right. Now, let's look at risk. And I'm not going to go into detail on risk. You can go research this and I probably need to do some several classes on all these different risk measurements, but when you think about all the different ways we could measure risk, like how much could rents drop before we have negative cash flow or how much can price drop before we'd have negative equity? Or what is our debt to income ratio? So the, the number that lenders tend to like to use to see how risky we are before they're willing to approve us for a loan. Or how much debt do we have to the amount of net worth we have, or how much debt do we have to how liquid we are, how much money we have sitting in cash somewhere, or how many months of reserves we have. You know, we talk sometimes about having six months of reserves or 12 months of reserves. Well, sometimes you can have lots and lots of months of reserves if you have a large bank account balance, like you know, 700 months of reserves, okay? So if we wanted to measure all of these measures of risk, it turns out 25% down is universally better. It is better in all the different measures of risk. It's less risky to put 25% down when we look at all the median numbers over the full 100 years. Now, does that mean that it is always less risky? No, it could mean that in year one or year five or something like that, that 25% down is worse, but that over the long haul, over a very long period of time, because we measure this over the entire period that we're modeling, 25% down is less risky than putting 20% down. And that is true in most of the cases in average too, The spots where it's not uh, true with averages is your average debt to account balance. So you have more liquidity if you put 20% down and the number of months of reserves, which honestly is not that big of a difference. It's 0.9% difference. So, but most of the time, 25% down is less risky when we look at that. Okay, now I told you this before. I've been using median home price and what I think rent would be uh, by looking up some rents on those properties. And you and and so these are not like cherry picked deals. You could apply the eighty eight strategies we have to improve cash flow to improve on these numbers. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me take a drink. So you could do better than this is what I'm trying to tell you. You should you should be able to choose and you should be able to do better. Um, and I do model some of these improvements and other modeling, like you know buying you know ten percent less. Price properties or getting a discount or buying down your interest rate or, you know, all these different things. We, we do model those, but we'll get to those eventually. But these are sort of like the basic cases. If you are an expert in your market and you can help improve my numbers, please do reach out to me. I'm not trying to show, I, I don't want to show like, you know, the, the one deal you found in 20 years that was super amazing. I want to find deals where any investor in that marketplace could find these deals. So if you could help me pick the numbers that are like any investor could go and buy these properties in their marketplace, that would be helpful to me. And then we could kind of update the numbers and kind of improve for those things. And as I mentioned earlier, there's really no local market limitations with this. If you were in a market where you had really bad economics, you could literally choose to invest in another market. You could go put your 20% down and buy properties in a much better cash flowing marketplace than the one you're living into. Now, the one you're buying is an owner-occupant. You're buying that in your local marketplace. But all the other investment properties, the nine other rentals, could be somewhere else. So just realize that it could be better than what we're showing. All right, so in conclusion, in our current market conditions, our current price, our current interest rates, our current rents, in about 305 U.S. markets, using what I would consider to be less than ideal medium price to rent properties, putting 25% down is slightly better in terms of net worth and speed to financial independence. The market does matter though. This is not universally true, which is what I think is really frustrating to people who when they get online, the online forum, they're arguing, it's better to put 20% down. It's better to put 25% down. Here are my reasons. Here are my reasons. And, and they kind of go head to head and they start really becoming competitive. And one of them could be in a market where it is better to put 20% down. Another could be in a market where it is better to put 25% down. So you got to look at these and see In my marketplace, what is better to do that? And does that mean that, you know, based on kind of our historical modeling, that that will be true in the future? No, but probabilistically, you look at what you have and you can make adjustments uh, along the way, right? And in reality, you could be doing the 20% down because that looks better, but then your market shifts and we look forward and we're like, hey, look, now it's better to do 25% down your marketplace. So you decide, hey, I'm going to start doing 25% down the future and I'm going to keep optimizing and maybe three years later that shifts again. So you have to keep you know, kind of on top of what is happening and optimize as you go to get the optimal results for yourself, okay? And then we can also, not that, you know, not that I want to go off on a big tangent, but we can look at what you actually have and then that becomes part of the equation for figuring out what is optimal moving forward because what you have may dictate some of the differences that you have in the future. So by having three rental properties that you bought a certain way may impact which of these options you really should do. Okay. All right. In general, putting 25% down is less risky. I think that's a good general way of saying it. There are some small exceptions to that, but in general, that's it. It is best, in my opinion, for you to look closer at your specific market, your specific situation, and apply as many of the 88 cash flow improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your own implementation. You can go look at realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model to get some ideas of how. Various things impact this as well. All right, that's all I got for you. Hope you enjoyed. This has been James Orr. Have a great day. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Garden Grove is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and prove your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Garden Grove that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.